Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and Enchantment, and this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season, we ask a range of wise people a common question and roam around in the breadth and depth of our knowing. How We Live Now is made possible by my brilliant community at Substack. For newsletters, book clubs, live hangouts and ad-free episodes of this podcast, Go to katherinemay.substack.com. Good morning. It's a quarter to eight. And I'm down here on the beach ready for a swim. It's a beautiful day. Not too hot. There's a few white clouds in the sky and a little breeze, which means that the sea has got a few waves on it. Sometimes in the summer like this, it's absolutely mill pond flat, but today it's got some some bite about it. I'm looking forward to getting in. Hello, sea. You're lovely and clear. Before I get in... I need to tell you about this week's episode where I'm talking to Bayara Komalafe, the fantastic public intellectual, speaker, writer, academic, thinker of some of the most 
challenging, exciting, contemporary thinking that we have right now. He was born in Nigeria and since then has taught and worked and lived all over the world and is particularly influenced by his Indian wife. He spent a lot of time researching life in the Indian slums. And I wanted to talk to him for ages. I was so excited when he agreed to speak to me. And I knew that the conversation would never be a straightforward one. I wanted to meander with him. I wanted to get down deep into his thinking and to enter that really playful space where you can explore ideas amicably and in a way that is not combative, that's about chiming two voices together. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I took enormous pleasure in it and I've been thinking about the conversation ever since. But it is not full of simple ideas. Bio works in complexity and in turning the world upside down right before our eyes. There's magic everywhere in his thinking and in his writing. And I really wanted to draw some of that out today. Okay, that's enough. I'm getting in the sea now. I'll have a chat with you when I get out again. Bio, welcome to How We Live Now. It's such a privilege to have you here. I have been thinking for a long time about how I could get you onto the podcast because your book, These Worlds Beyond Our Fences, was just such a revelation to me in so many ways. But I don't want to talk about that specifically today because <laughs> <laughs> that's too easy. But I wanted to invite you on to share your incredible perspective on the world. So welcome. I, well, it's so great pleasure to be here, sister, and to have this conversation with you. And I've been looking forward to this as well. So um, yeah, feeling is neutral. It's a good Let's way to spend it, yeah. an afternoon. <laughs> okay, well, let's just let everyone know who you are and where you come from. First yes. of all, you've got a fascinating background. You come from, I'll let you tell it, you come from a Nigerian family, yes. but you don't live in Nigeria. No, anymore. I was born in Nigeria, three months out from being born, obviously, I moved to Germany with my family. My father was a diplomat. And so we moved to Germany, which happens to be the place where I'm speaking to you from now. And we were a very itinerant family traveling all over the place. But I did most of my growing mm. up in Nigeria, schooling in Nigeria, teaching in Nigeria. And then I got married to a beautiful Indian, African Indian woman and moved to India. And that is where I have made my home. Which it links to your work as well, because I think you spent some time as an anthropologist researching Indian life in, in slums. Is that oh, right? I was trained as a psychologist. I don't think it would be improper for you to actually tag me 
with anthropology because I, I was I've always been fascinated with cultures and anthropology. Even having my own yeah. teaching colleagues say, you know, stick to the tried and true path of psychology and don't wander <laughs> off the highway. But I never saw disciplinarity in a single as a single monolithic enterprise. I always saw it as transversalized, as crisscrossing, as crossroadian, and as tricksterish. My adventures in studying and staying in slums or wanting to understand from different perspectives have always been transdisciplinary in that way. Yeah. Well, it's funny because my first degree was transdisciplinary in social psychology, anthropology and sociology. Oh, so I think I don't know the difference between the three yeah. of them, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the way to go. It's, <laughs> it's the way to see the world. From my perspective, there, there is no easy Newtonian thing to arrive at. We live in a crossroads. So how did you come to the point of writing? Did that emerge from a kind of academic impetus or was it more about telling your life story? Because you're a beautiful memoirist, aren't you? I think. Mm, thank you so much. I'm <laughs> blushing. You can't see it, but I'm blushing. <laughs> I started to write at a very young age. I, I had elaborate plans to write encyclopedia <laughs> you, you know, to, <laughs> I love that, to, which didn't make any sense whatsoever to my parents, but I just wanted to write. I remember as a freshman, no, I think I was a sophomore in the university and I wanted to give a public lecture, you know, just because professors were doing it. So why not a student? And so they asked me to actually, yeah, let's have a student try to give a public lecture. <laughs> so I wrote my lecture. It was very Christocentric, which described my religious persuasion at, at the time. And so I wrote a public lecture called Moses or Darwin, you know, how, I, for, I, I forget the tagline. It was something about creationism, you know. Oh, wow. Yes. And it became 200 pages. I wrote 200 pages. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> and so the university counseled it and, and persuaded me to make it a book. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I just felt, so from a very early, early age, I've always felt this, what I might call an ecological ventriloquism, like, like something possesses. Mm and wants to write so that in a sense, I'm not the author. Yeah. Yeah. So that something else is speaking through you. Yes. And I know that sounds corny sometimes, but it really feels like a very pressing and compelling felt experience that mm. I'm not the one moving the pen. And I ritualize this in some ways by listening to music to write. And without that agency, writing becomes impossible for me. That's so interesting. Yeah. And it it's definitely... I, it's definitely my experience too, that I can't access the part of me that writes. Yeah. Like I, I don't know where that comes from. And I, I certainly have no control over yeah. it. I only wish I did. Yes. And it always feels like when I have written that I can look back over it and just wonder where, where those thoughts connected together. Like how, when did those connections happen and, and how exactly. it's, it's mysterious. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> I have the same feeling. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, this is nice. Like I'm viewing it as if for the first time, which is reassuring. Yeah. Well, every now and then I get asked to write something that I haven't, you know, that the spirit isn't moving me for. And uh, that's so hard. And I wonder if that's how other people find writing. Like all these people that hated writing at school, I think that's how it must have been for them. No wonder they hated yeah. it. It's awful. Yeah. yeah. It's drudgery. Yes. So 
We are talking in this season about enchantment, which I've just written about. And my perspective on it was really that of a, of a beginner and a learner to be more enchanted and to let that fluidity between the observable and the provable and the, the statable to other people flow with those edges of my perception that I can't give voice to. Mm. And that are maybe not the same as other people's perception either. Mm. And I think for me, your your work often speaks at the edges of that too, that you're thinking about that huge mixture of what it is to be human. Right. Does that make sense to you, first of all? Yeah, am, I, yeah. am I posing Yes, something? I mean, edges, edges. We are constantly performing edges, like to give ourselves mm. definitions. Um, our stories are replete with edge ritualizing work, right? Like this is where the city stops and yeah. this is where the, the wilds begin. This is where what it means to be human. And the other side of that is the monster. So we're constantly making edges. Mm. I This is the reason why I named my book, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences. It's like at some point we will need to lean on the fence long enough to break into the so-called disreputable wilds <laughs> to, to, to meet the monsters that we've cordoned off or quarantined or pushed away because um, yeah. the ontology of where we are is hollowing out and it's pushing us and to the edges, right? So edges, right? Mm, mm. And I, I feel, I was writing about this this morning, actually, like I've always identified as an edge dweller. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm comfortable mm-hmm. on the borders between. And I, like, I think that's maybe where writers live in lots of ways. We're interpreters between those two places. We speak both languages. Yes. Yes. But I feel like this age is is the age of the edge dweller. Like we're we're beginning to feel at home when everyone else is getting intensely uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's um I put it this way that uh, I, I mean I've often written it this way that I think it was Karen Barad that said that we are in a time when the world is kicking back. I like the idea of the world kicking back. Suddenly the world isn't this mute instrumental backdrop to human sociality. The world is is also an actor on the stage or the stage is an actor as mm. well. And and the stage mm. is mounting up an insurgency against the plot, if you will. Whether, whether it's a, the hero's journey or whatever is playing out on the stage, the stage is like, I, I, um, I will have my say. And I think that's the very mm. definition of enchantment for me. When things spill, when things refuse yeah. categorization or instrumentality. Yeah. And in your hands, the world is sentient. I mean, it, there's not even a sense of animism that I read in you. There's a sense instead that we are interacting with another sentient system mm. and indeed a, a part of a sentient system. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah, please yeah. Go, go ahead, sister. Yeah. No, I was going to turn it into a question, but actually it isn't really. I, it was just a, a provocation for you to talk. Mm. <laughs> um, well, I lean heavily on panentheistic not pantheistic, but panentheistic, which of course is processual thinking and thinks about God or whatever you want to call it as becoming, Mm. right? Not as a grand pure ontology of being, but as a becomingness, right? Mm. In the same way, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about entanglement and how we are 
related with the world, especially in times of IPCC reports and doomsday clocks and pandemics and the Anthropocene. We are learning that we are entangled with the land, but I don't think that even goes far enough because it suggests that we are this independent qualities, that we have independent edges and boundaries fates are complete. Mm. We're already made. And then we have relations with the world. No, I think the world, what we rudely and conveniently call the world, is a flow of relations. Somehow we concretize or we are crystallized from those ongoing relationships. So yes, this is sentience touching itself orgasmically. <laughs> looking forward. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it informs my view, for instance, about AI and, right. and the hubris of believing that intelligence can be natural, right? In the ways that we presume mm-hmm. it to be when we name a clunky bits of metal artificial, and then we look to our flesh organic and pink and we call it natural. There's a sense in which the world Mm -hmm. is denaturing itself, that nature isn't some place, location in the distance, that nature is a constant denaturing of itself. It's a constant exploration of place and space and temporality. I'm more and more troubled by this word nature and natural because it... I don't know. I mean, I think if you're like a a white female, you know, like a, yeah, a white female writer writing in the West and you write about human experience, you get called a nature writer at the moment. And so that's often pinned on me. And it comes with this set of assumptions about what I believe. And so quite often when I'm being interviewed, people will say, well, of course you think we should put our phones down and go out and walk in nature. And I'm like, hmm. I actually don't. I mean, I like I love I love walking, but I I feel like I'm in nature everywhere. Yeah. I don't understand where the line is drawn mm. and how other people see that line as being so definitive. But also I I don't understand how that doesn't extend onto my phone, honestly, and into the environments that are created. Yes. Yeah there and and the contact I feel with other people on there. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It feels to me like such narrowed, boundaried thinking and it's fundamentally punitive, Mm. which is, it's just the spirit of how we talk about everything, but it punishes us for wanting to make connection Mm. in a world that feels so dislocated. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't see the problem with us seeking connection Mm. really. Oh, that, that those are wise words. It's it's the sticky and resilient enlightenment thinking, right? It's nature is out mm. there and we are in here. And then the involutions or the inflection points now say, oh no, we are connected to nature. And so we then see built environments as not nature, right? Which only reinforces The same thinking that led us to thinking about nature as outside in the first place, the patch of green in the distance. So so, um, seeing phones as nature might be shockingly um, (laughs) offensive to someone who stays in the farm and gets his or her nails, you know, dirty and spends time with animals. There is a desire to preserve the authenticity of that experience. But beyond that, the question really is, where do we draw the line? Um, If we see nature as a thing, as an object, then it becomes amenable to colonization. It becomes amenable to fascism. But if we see nature as process, then we see freedom being possible. Yeah. Yeah. 
for me, the the bigger problem is our, uh, I don't know, the distance between our living and the materials that we're using. And I, and that's, I think that's often what people are talking about when they talk about nature is yeah. this idea that things are basic, you know, that natural things are basic. They're, they're down to their bare building blocks and, and we can understand them as organic. Mm. And I, for me, the problem isn't our sense of disconnection from that. It's actually our sense of material complexity that's grown so great that we that we don't quite understand it anymore because as as much as I love the links that my phone can make for me yeah. what I don't love about it is that I can't repair it and that I, <laughs> that it it's mm-hmm. drifted very far from my sense of of reality actually it's become this sort of celestial object that if it dies, if, if the screen goes blank one day, I, there's nothing I can do about that. And I don't understand how it's composed or made or, or how it thinks. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That's my technological yeah. naivety, though, I think. <laughs> Works for me as well. It's, just, it's the same. But, but, but doesn't that also, I mean, it, it's like the things around us that we could readily describe as natural processes, if, if we delineate the world in that way. Like when things die, there's no fixing that, right? There's no, Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know how plants work, right? Not it, really, they're, no. They're, they're just as inscrutable to me. I, I don't understand how Cordyceps unilateralis, the fungi, I, mm. I, I don't know how it, how it invades ants' bodies and converts them into zombie ants and yeah. performs this movie-like intelligence yeah. that leaves me astounded. So there is a sense of, or that is maybe a call to worship that is constantly held, not just with dying phones, but with but the emergence of all things. Yeah, and, yeah. A, and a life cycle that is yes. expressed in our technology as much as it is in, in this natural world that yes. we imagine, you know, this projected natural world that is just continuous with the rest of life as far as I can see it. Yes, yes. And, I, and that, that brings us to questions of culture, um, and seeing as I've like mislabeled you as an anthropologist already, that's the concern of anthropologists. <laughs> I'm mislabeling that I wholeheartedly embrace, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, that's been on my mind a lot as people bring up nature to me all the time, that this kind of differentiation we have between nature and culture and the yeah. idea that humans have culture and everything else is either technology or nature. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously, from what I've said, I already think that's a false distinction. But I begin to wonder about this idea that we've always had about humans holding culture, because I I actually think as 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 a white Westerner, I was raised academically to believe that I was culturally neutral, that almost mm. I didn't have culture <laughs> and that other societies had culture, you know. And mm. there's a there's a sort of inflection of primitivism in there that that, that like there are of these course. more simple societies that have culture that we can observe, but ours is actually neutral and, and technocratic. Yes. How does that distinction work in, in this world now? Like it's becoming absurd to even think that way, I think. I mean, it plays out in the exact ways that feminists, materialists and um, ecologists and indigenous thinkers and black scholars have been naming for a long time. Mm. That the moment you start to think of nature as this 
thing apart and culture, then you are creating this anthropocentric division, this gash in the world and a problem that you now try to feel, solve or resolve by trying to re-entangle yourself. It's the Cartesian idea, right? Yeah. First we separate ourselves and then we wonder why we're separated and <laughs> from the world. And then we now try to make moves to reconnect ourselves. But the, the prevailing and underpinning assumption is that we've never been apart with these dumb, you know, yeah. mute yeah. and insignificant processes that we're heading for the stars. And I think there's a resilient part of Western culture, yes, that is this search for transcendence, mm. like a Baldorian epic, a search for, you know, a final singularity where we are shaved off and finally divorced from dust and mm. materiality. And, yeah. and this, this longing is implicated in climate chaos, is implicated yeah. in, in the issues we're tr- uh, contending with today. Sorry, I've got like a a multitude of thoughts all springing up at once, but it strikes me that we want that Cartesian duality. You know, we want to be the separate mind and body, but we want to integrate into the the fabric of the universe from that standpoint rather than abandoning it first. So we want to stay separated and then backwardsly immersed rather than abandoning this idea of separation in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think there is a morbid uh, fear and disgust about entanglement, even though we speak poetically and glowingly about it, right? It, there, mm. There's a sense in which we're frightened about the prospects of losing our independence. And sometimes I wonder while chuckling about <laughs> the hidden microbes and the plant life and animal life and viral bacterial life and all the architectural instigations, textural instigations, you know, and um, the world around us that makes it possible for f- to feel that fear. <laughs> mm, <laughs> right? yeah. So that even our quest, our fear about losing our independence is already a mark of our interdependence with yeah. things, our interaction yeah. with things. So th- the thing here is not, is that most of the time we're thinking of entanglement and enchantment as something to come right? It's futural. It's mm-hmm. that one day we will unite with nature. And I think that's still enlightenment, beating around the bush, trashing around in the mud, not wanting to let go of the idea that it has always been, <laughs> it has always been, you know, affiliated and relational and processual. Well, we, we just no longer have the the opportunity or the right to think that we're separate from the mud and the dirt. Like, you know, it's that's going to, it's coming back way. to visit us. You know? Yes. Yes. The mud yeah. is speaking, it, right? It's, yeah. it's what Deleuze might call desire, right? It's that there's this vast, beautiful, non, well, I don't want to say beautiful, but I think of it poetically as beautiful. This mm. more than human force that shape shifts our bodies, right? Mm. You might even notice its shape when, you find Will Smith speaking on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and his words are communicating one thing and his body is communicating loudly different stories. <laughs> different. It's, it's how body language experts read the world. It's, it's the idea that we are speaking with two tongues, right? Mm-hmm. There's what we say and there's what the world is saying with what we say. Yeah, yeah. And how we're channeling that. Yeah. I... <laughs> 
I wanted to ask you about hushes, which you oh, write about. There we go. Yeah, I, I feel like we're we're approaching hush territory. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> can you try and articulate what hushes are? They're they're very poetic ideas, I think. Well, I, I think the the gig is up at this point, so I, I'll just let it slip or let it go. Um, I've been playing this game with my readers for some time. Especially people who interview me about hushes. And I'm always, I keep, I'm mum about it. I'm very silent. I, I never say a word about it. I just say, what do you think? What do you think about hushes? People write me all the time and say, you know, I really try to find out a, the picture of a hush. You know, it's biological <laughs> distinctions and all of that, but I really cannot locate it. Could you lead me to some references about it? And I and I chuckle, but but I'll just the gig is up. Maybe I'll just go ahead and say that. <laughs> You're gonna have but, to fess up. <laughs> I'm just gonna fess up that. You know, hushes are attempts, literary attempts to disturb our notions of completion. <laughs> right. It's it's the blind spot, their peripheralities, if you will. They live at the corner of our eyes. And I went so much, you know, I took some trouble to actually describe how they live in the corners of our eyes. I'm trying to populate worlds um, mm. beyond the visual regimes that we're used to. You know, to see yeah. straightforwardly is an energy of modern civilization. It's it's how we are trained to see, to deal with the problem, gain clarity about the problem. Clarity is the paradigm, you know, mm. of of choice. It's well beyond choice. It's more than volitional. Uh, clarity and seeing straightforwardly. But I want to see how uh, or notice how there are worlds to the edges of straightforward thinking. I want to notice stupidity in a different way. I want to agentialize wisdom, you know, and to also bring in the idea that final, there's no sort of finality we can aspire to, a place where things are finally done. You know, I love the writer Ursula Le Guin and how she writes about the ones who walk away from Omelas. You know, she disrupting finality in a sense, breaking utopia. So hushes are agents of this finality. I just made that up. I'm sure that's okay with you. (laughs) You're a master phrase maker. I think think they're the kind of dirty, seething seeds of the next life to come. You know, like they're these evasive, fugitive little notions that are shifting in your peripheral vision, but which are impossible to interrogate. And interrogate. Yes. Yes. I adored that. (laughs) My whole body spoke to that. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. It's the reason why I never find the final hush, right? It's the reason why the book ends with failure. It's the reason why the book ends with me dead, speaking from dust, right? the, The book is never, was never meant to be a project of completion. It was meant to interrogate completion and and to also honor things that spill away from, like you say beautifully, interrogation, textuality, Mm. clarity. It's the right to opacity, using Edward Glisson's phrasing. We'll return to the episode in just a moment. But How We Live Now is part of a community and I wanted to recommend another podcast that I think you'll love. Hi, 
I'm Penny Windsor, author and book coach and host of Not Too Busy to Write, the podcast about writing amongst life's many other demands. Join me as I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about their work and most importantly, how they get the work done. Writing can be a lonely pursuit, especially when you're juggling other work, parenting, caring, a disability. So join us each Wednesday to hear how other writers from backgrounds of all kinds make it work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's very hard to assert that right to opacity, but also to assert the right to incompletion. And I, it's really interesting yeah. that you raised Ursula Le Guin because I think she expresses that other notion of storytelling so well that is in conflict with the hero's journey. That you know, the, the fundamental problem of the hero's journey is it represents actually nothing to do with with real life, yes. and that there are these other ways of telling a story. And that is a, a foraging metaphor rather than a... Carry a, a bag, right, yeah. Yeah, rather than yeah. a kind of murderous, killing Phallic. and overcoming kind of metaphor. Yeah. spears and all that, yes, yes. And to me, those stories are, are by nature unfinished and unfinishable. They're, they're continuous. Indeed, beautiful. Here, here's my proposal and I'm making it live to everyone here. <laughs> How about we write something together, uh, oh, Catherine? Let's. And yeah, uh, even if it's an essay or something, and we call it the right to incompletion. It, mm. there, there's, there is a sense in which modern civilization, and even if we're to think beyond those atmospheric concepts or localize it even further, cities, streets, social algorithms, you know, we are being trained to see from the perspective of completion. It might yeah. be implicated in how we think about morality, for instance, how mm -hmm. we look back to the 60s and say, huh, um, this person should have used this language or done this or, or behaved this way or stuff. It's that we assume that the world is just a chunk of moral bits and pieces mm -hmm. that are readily available to any proper individual, you yeah. know? Yeah. The, this idea of propriety and correctness and completion is, and, and this is not to say it's wrong either. I don't want to binarize the world. I don't traffic in binaries that way. No, but no. to notice what that is doing, how we are creating sediments of completion and how mm. that might turn back and hurt us. Yeah. I think as I age, I know this more intuitively than ever, that life is fundamentally 
unstable. Like human life yeah. and human experience is fundamentally unstable. Yeah. And when I when I try and explain what childhood was like to my son and the the expectations of us then and, and the very different human relationships that that happened around that to, compared to how we parent now. Yeah. It's inexpressible. And yet there was nothing wrong with it. It's just that we are a species in constant flux and we think we're stable, but we are, mm. we change so, so much. And culturally we change enormously and we don't notice it happening. Yes. But we believe that it's, that we can trace it. And I don't think we can. It's, it's much more random. It's, it's sedimentary. It's like the floating up of sediment from the bottom of a, a stream and, and the swirls, you know, it's that random mm -hmm. to me, I think, as I get older. You know, it's it's that um, philosophical riddle of the ages in the ship of Theseus. Ship of Theseus, yeah. yeah. It's 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 that we're constantly changing, but I think we memorialize or uh, lionize selves as monoliths, you know, as and, and so we think of ourselves as, you know, complete. It's how we even practice activism today. It's yeah. it's the creation of boogeymen and villains and. Of course, I know probably the strategy of villainizing could be useful in <laughs> in some yeah. way. Who's to it say? Works. You know, <laughs> it, it works. It, it definitely works for, for some ends. So this is not a way of saying, hey, by villainizing um, capitalism, for instance, or just creating isms, you are doing the wrong thing. You know, that would be to think within those you know, architectural mm. spaces, but it's, it, it's to notice that it does certain things. You know, there is a cost to ontologizing the world in specific ways, to knowing the world in specific ways. And maybe we are at a point in our collective, and I use collective very sparingly and loosely, but maybe we're in a point at our collective planetary cautionary tale of existing and becoming together where we need to take, make new moves and take mm. new directions and dance on the streets instead of just walking in, walking in rectilinear fashion, right? <laughs> Maybe the, the public order is populated by cracks and the work of our time is to stay within these cracks as spaces of inquiry. So yeah. Yeah. This feels, let the cracks yeah. open up. Yeah. 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 I think this is a good moment to talk about autism, actually, because you've written okay. beautifully about your son's autism. I yeah. don't think you identify as autistic yourself, but am I wrong about that? I don't want to get that wrong. Everyone else does. Uh, well, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> including, including psychologists, they're like, yes, you're, you're autistic. <laughs> I really, that's really interesting. But yeah. I have no diagnosis to verify that. But well, I respect what yeah. people say I am. That's interesting. Okay. I, I just, I wanted to ask because I didn't want to kind of talk over your head on that front. Um, <laughs> no, no, no problem. <laughs> well, I have enormous problems with the culture around diagnosis anyway, but maybe that, maybe this is not the moment, but I wanted to talk about your work in trying to understand your son's resistance to the world around him yeah. and, and how that opened up a space for you to think about kind of, I guess, resistant politics in lots of ways that the autism is actually as I see it and I think as you see it too a, yes. a fundamentally political and wearing that label is actually a, a political statement of resistance for me now yeah. increasingly that is a brilliant way to you know to speak about autistic politics right that even feels tautological speaking with you sister right autism is fundamentally political is a beautiful way to to notice that um 
sometimes the world spills, right? Yeah. And I'm intrigued by excess, mm. right? That by spillage, by exuberance, exuberance, yeah. by yeah. what the Aztecs called a sleeping excrescence, which is the name Huitlacoche, which is what they gave to the phenomenon of a fungal infection on corn. Ah, <laughs> right? okay, I love yeah. it so poetic. And, and how, they, how they made this disease, what Americans would call corn smut, how they made that disease a delicacy, beautiful mm. dish, right? Sleeping excrescence. Beautiful. Um, Autism is like a sleeping excrescence to me. It's, it's from one perspective, from the perspective of white modernity. And of course, by white, I don't mean white identified bodies. This is not reducible yeah. to individuals, you know, in the ways that popular activisms may reduce it. Mm -hmm. um, this is about terraforming projects. This is about the impersonal politics of whiteness and how it co-ops and enlists bodies to materialize itself. Right. I feel that what white modernity, neurotypicality is trying to do is to flatten the world. And in its efforts to flatten the world, to make it possible for the individual to thrive so that there are no confronting monsters, uh, monsters or wilds. Yeah. Right. In trying to do so, it meets the ironic. It meets the paradoxical. And in trying to label something in a final way, that thing gains some kind of fugitive life and does something else. And you mm. could almost tell the story of at least one genealogy of how we came to the idea of autism, you know, oh, yeah. uh, along with the rise of industrialization. Yeah. Right. The more we laid down the markers of civilization, it seemed intriguingly that at the same time, we started to measure more autism, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah. Started to say more about autism. Maybe autism is the city resisting itself. Maybe that is the ecstasy of mod modernity exploring itself. Maybe that's quantum physics. Maybe that's spillage. Maybe that's blackness, right? Mm -hmm. So when I speak about autism, I'm speaking about errancy, right? Or what some might say, errantry. I'm speaking about losing one's way. And I'm speaking yeah. about that as a politics that we have congregated politics around baseline realities and stable natures for mm -hmm. so long. Mm -hmm. So that all we do is try to enact inclusionary politics. That is yeah. a language of accommodation. Let's give you a place of power. Let's create more room for minorities to sit on yeah. this table of power. But, but what if there are other tables? What if there are other rooms? What if there are other ways of being in the world? And I think until we stray and learn to stray together and experiment with strain, um, we will continue to be trapped and incarcerated in a reality that no longer seems to work for most of us. No, absolutely. And I, the more I speak and write about autism, the less I become interested in autism itself and the more I become interested in neurotypicality and what that <laughs> means and what that is. Um, yeah. Because both of them are fundamentally fugitive concepts, right? Yeah. And the more that we yeah. research autism, the less we understand what it is. Yeah. And it, it begins to seem to me that autism is the word that we use for deviation from the pattern and actually for resistance, you know, and, and one of the things that is common among autistic people and how we get that label in the first place is at some point we've resisted. Yeah. And, and for some people that resistance is met with 
you know, with violence, honestly, yeah. and with incarceration. Yes. And for others of us, we grow up being seen as difficult or troubled or other or weird, like weird is the word that, that chases us around forever. And that's exactly where I'd want to be. Like, I, I can't imagine any other situation that I'd want to take up in this world other than different to that neurotypical mainstream. Mm. And mm. and yet we don't understand what that what neurotypicality is and what is. we what we mean by it and yeah. the the fundamental values embedded in it. it. Again, it's seen as neutral and it is not neutral. It is something. Yeah. Yes. Oh, beautiful. It's you know, this has inspired a short story I'm currently writing, I'm beginning to write. It's I think I've called it Dr. Johnson's Asylum for the Sane. <laughs> Right, right, some something like that, or, or um, but it definitely ends with the asylum for the sane, and and it's it's, it's a story of um, well, I don't want to give it all away now, but but it's no, basically no plot spoilers. Twelve weeks, the story of a an inscrutable, mysterious rich man who starts up an asylum, but not for the people that you would think asylums are made for, but for the people who think they are not, you know. <laughs> the, Everyone else, you know, everyone else, the people who go to work on time, the people who are punctual, the people <laughs> who know how to regulate their emotions, basically. <laughs> and and this strange man is basically looking at what I would, you know, what clinical psychologists might tag a meltdown, mm. a, a tantrum with pediatric autism, right? Yeah. And say, don't you see that the air is enthused around this person that that they're feeling intensely. Don't you want to feel as well? When did you mm. stop learning how to feel? When did you stop feeling? When did you stop playing? Right. And this is not to romanticize autism either as some fairy no. godlike status. Yeah. It, it, but it is to call into question the, the forms we've taken. And what we're missing out on is to put some buoyancy and credence and value to the rumors that there are other ways of being alive. Absolutely. And it, and what you're saying makes me think immediately of my perception as a child, which was that other people were numb and I was feeling like, because mm. I'd watch other people move through public spaces and I'd be flinching at every loud sound or or shrinking away when people banged into me. And, and, you know, normally itching away at a seam or a label in my, in my, in my T-shirt. Yeah. And other people would walk across that same space with no seeming affect at all. Mm-hmm. They were not confronted by it. And it's only later in life when I, I realised that, I, you know, that the label autistic fitted me, that I realised that people thought that I had no affect, that my affect was wrong, that my yeah. emotions weren't working at all. Yeah. And I'd always assume that about them. I always, I could never understand why people were not <laughs> feeling this, this incredibly kind of assailing universe around them that, that was assailing me. Um, it, it, it's right there in the name, right? Autism, it's, it's mm. self. It's like you're yeah. so stuck on yourself that you don't feel. And yes, you're not- I know. Yeah. It's quite a, I mean, that term autism We've all rushed yeah. to adopt it because it's it's a it's been a clarion call, you know, and we we wanted to gather under that umbrella. But I I am troubled by the way that that label was created, which which came from this idea of self absorption and self obsession. How about we actually, experiment with one now, sister? Oh, experiment let's... with a new name now. How about now? I, 
I know you can do this because I you create <laughs> the most amazing strings of words spontaneously. So I feel like it's like jazz, like you could just improvise a hundred of those in the next 10 minutes. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> Rhizosm or something. It, it has to be something that basically says... There, there isn't a stable self that the mm. supposed autistic is stuck on. Instead, they're feeling intensely, seen intensely, mm. right? Mm. There's something, and, and we're skirting Deligny here, who we're both a fan of, who, who worked with autistic young people and essentially set them loose on a mountainside in, in France to just be, yes. to, to exist. But yeah. he talked about the idea of the Arachnean, which is this... Yeah imaginary society, culture, world that that you might compare to a kind of Atlantis in which we are fully alive to our interconnection. But to the way that this interconnection is really fragile and kind of improvised in the moment and fleeting, mm. but but profound and beautiful. And I would love the word for autism to express that because I don't think we're separate. I don't think that we are isolated anyway. I think we actually feel those roots of connection very, very mm. profoundly, but they're often outside of language. Mm. Well, it'll have to, you know, I'm thinking about my, my son and the meaning of his name is um, never far off. That he's ah. he's always beside. And I'm thinking about autism as this sidling intelligence. You know, one which also inspired by Delini, you know, I have written in my notes as the paraterranean, right? Almost yeah. very similar to the Arachnean is a form of subterranean life, but not subterranean in the ways that might invite um, you to abseil, you know, down a crack <laughs> or something. But the subterranean in, in the sense of a paraterranean to the side of that invites you to walk on your toes to see it, mm -hmm. to bend your posture, to feel it, that there are between bodies. You know, the Harry Potter-esque notion of running into the wall at the train station. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. that almost feels autistic. It's like, <laughs> it's like everyone's walking this path and you go the wrong way, right? There, mm -hmm. There's there's something about autism that that feels like taking the wrong path, adopting a different posture, feeling yeah. intensely. Um, as a result. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah. There's we'll something very, yeah, we will. And <laughs> I think the, the metaphors that always come to mind for me, although apparently I'm not able to create metaphor because I'm autistic, but there we go. It's, it's interesting. I, I find autistic people like very symbolic thinkers, mm. um, but it's a, a mycelium and mm. this, this kind of, this fine threaded network that weaves its way between multiple actors in the in the woodland and which is vast like unfathomably vast and unfathomably ancient but it's also fundamentally interstitial it never wants to be the main picture it's ah i don't know it's it's too evasive for that and that makes so much sense to me maybe may of course I'm, we've already touched on this that Autism in, in this, I don't want to say in itself, you know, as if it has mm -hmm. a stable meaning of its own, but we're describing something that is fugitive, that is, yeah. that, that will not be named finally. But there is some value to straying away from 
the idea of of a narcissistic self that can only behold itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is the designation autism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm really leaning into my mycelialism now, or mycelialism now, or yeah. or <laughs> or fugitivism, yeah. or something something yeah. that says that there's a different posture here, and it's not pathological; it's political. Mm, it is. It's fundamentally political. And I I suppose to kind of close a a huge arc that we've been talking in, when I first read about hushes in your book, I wrote autism in the Mm. the margin. (laughs) (laughs) Hushism, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We are are the hushes. Mm. Wow, that feels right. I think that's a moment to close our conversation because I I would love to continue it at many, many times and maybe we can, but um, that's a, that's a really beautiful place to land now. I think so. Thank you. That feels like my brain has been set on fire in, in a hundred different places all at once. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Thank you. It's been great. The water is so warm. It's so funny. The last time I went in, it was freezing. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bio. I was thinking about him as I was swimming and thinking about how I like to swim, which is in a very non-linear way. I like to go in and see where the sea takes me to bob about like a cork to stretch my limbs to abandon this idea of taking control and cutting through the sea I always want to be part of the sea for a little while and to listen for what the sea tells me I think this morning it said, welcome home. I'm now full of wild ideas that I'll do the double and swim again this evening. You never know, might do. It's a big day. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone, and coming along with me this morning. You helped, you helped to get me there. I'll see you very soon. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here to explore how we live now. This podcast is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. Buddy Peace also composed the wonderful incidental music. For updates, show notes, transcriptions and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at catherinemay.substack.com where you can also upgrade to support the show and join my vibrant community of readers, writers and wanderers. And finally, if you enjoyed my podcast, please consider buying my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. See you next time. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.